I want to start this podcast about West African slavery in an unconventional manner, but I believe it's going to help us comprehend what happened to West Africa. Nestled in scenic northwest Indiana is the city of Gary, and hidden within its remarkable history is a lesson about the rise and fall of West Africa. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the third of four episodes regarding the West African slave trade. Episode 3, The Rise of the Fiscal Military State and the Subsequent Fall of West Africa. All of my students have thoughts regarding nearby Gary, Indiana, and most of those thoughts are not of the pleasant variety. To them, it is a dangerous place that they likely have been implored by their parents to avoid. In the 1980s, Gary would go on to achieve the dubious distinction as the murder capital of the world. When Michael Bay was working on the Transformers movies franchise, they filmed a number of scenes in Gary. According to one person who worked on the sets, they chose the city because it gave them the look of a third world nation without forcing them to travel to one. Neither of those two facts serve as strong endorsements to boost your tourism industry. The fact is, Gary has been down on its luck for my entire life, but it wasn't always this way. Gary was founded in 1906 by the chairman of U.S. Steel, Albert Gary. The city was created to fulfill a promise of creating a more sustainable and better model for an American city. The steel industry was booming for the first half of the 20th century. Two world wars, the rise of the U.S. automobile industry, and the expansive upward growth of American cities made steel the business that you wanted to be in. The land surrounding Gary was cheap marshland. It was purchased en masse by the U.S. Steel Corporation for the creation of housing designed to allow the company's workers to live the perfect suburban lifestyle at an affordable price. The location on Lake Michigan allowed the produced steel to be efficiently shipped out around the world through the St. Lawrence Seaway. The subsequent success of U.S. Steel led to a massive golden age for the city, which took on two unique nicknames, the Magic City for its unprecedented rise and the White City, symbolizing its evolution to the shining city on a hill as an example for other metropolises to follow. It is shocking for anyone who did not see it in its heyday, but Gary was the envy of Chicagoland. While today, residents in northwest Indiana use the train to quickly travel to Chicago, the South Shore Line was originally created to transport Chicagoans who wanted to shop and dine in Gary, Indiana, visit the Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore, or travel all the way to South Bend to see a Notre Dame football game. Notre Dame at this point even bore the divisive nickname of Chicago's football team. Residents of Northwest Indiana can still see hints of the legacy of Gary in the old South Shore travel posters, as well as when they watch The Christmas Story on an endless loop every holiday season. 
They may even know the catchy song titled Gary, Indiana, that was part of the 1957 Tony Award-winning musical, The Music Man. But most commonly known about Gary today is that it was the boyhood home of the Jackson Five. There are also lesser-known influences from Gary's time as the Magic City. Take, for instance, the current model used for American schooling. The inclusion of skill-based classes such as home economics and swimming were all developed as part of the Gary education system, which became the model for all American public schools to this very day. Gary's fall is habitually misconstrued, and that largely has to do with its second nickname, the White City. The founding citizens of Gary, Indiana were the first workers at the steel mill. This typically made them immigrants from Central and Eastern Europe. The city at its founding in 1906 was thus decidedly white. Soon, however, the great northward migration saw large numbers of African Americans leave the South for northern industrial centers. Between 1916 and 1970, more than 6 million African Americans journeyed to the North and settled in cities such as Chicago, Detroit, Cincinnati, and of course, Gary, Indiana. Today, far too many area residents chalk up the decline of Gary to the racist practice of white flight. To be clear, there were those that fled for racist reasons during the demographic shift. But the decision of many whites to leave the city is merely a part of the story, one that is far too simplistic and misses the mark for full understanding. African-American workers did come to join the U.S. Steel family as a part of the Great Migration. They subsequently moved into company housing and attended local schools. There, they faced discrimination and internal segregation. One famous example was that black students were unable to use the school's swimming pool on the same day as the white students. These acts of daily discrimination were unfortunately all too common throughout the country in the 1940s. Those that participated in the trendy act of white flight sold their houses for less than they were valued at, packing up quickly and moving to nearby towns such as Whiting, Indiana, which according to its official travel slogans maintained the feel of a quaint, charming southern town despite the fact that it was on a parallel line of latitude as Chicago. But most residents did not flee their homes. The flight that did happen, however, saw large, expensive housing become available in a market with few buyers available. The local banks were discriminating against African Americans at this time and unwilling to authorize them the loans necessary to afford the available homes. That meant that they began to decay quickly. Where the financing did happen, there oftentimes were not subsequent follow-up loans that allowed for the upkeep of the homes, which in turn depressed the values for their neighbors, which in turn persuaded more residents to sell their houses at below market prices in order to leave. This is a part of the story, but the bottom for Gary, Indiana fell out in the 1970s when the steel industry which the entire economy of Gary was centered around, fell apart. 
1970, U.S. Steel employed one out of every five residents of Gary, Indiana. The rise of foreign steel, a massive U.S. recession that resulted in gas shortages, and the growth of workplace automation resulted in the near death of the American steel industry. The first waves of layoffs occurred in 1971, with tens of thousands of Gary residents simultaneously becoming unemployed without any prospects. That is a significant portion of the city abruptly losing their jobs and becoming unable to pay their taxes, maintain the upkeep and payments on their homes, and continue to shop within a community that prided itself on bringing in shoppers from Chicago. By 1972, Time Magazine wrote that Gary sits like an ash heap in the northwest corner of Indiana, a grimy, barren steel town. As manufacturers continued laying off workers and reducing steel production due to declining demand, its fate became sealed. This level of economic hardship has a downward effect on every facet of life. At the time, local tax dollars paid for all of the city's services, including hospital, fire, police, and schools. Gary was the first school system to have their own swimming pool, in large part because of the success of the city's steel industry. Without the mills employing the citizens, that tax base dried up. Police departments had to fire many officers and significantly reduce the salaries of the officers that they managed to retain. Workplace morale quickly plummeted. Schools cut extraneous programs and staff to stay within the new budget realities. Gary had learned the lesson that failure to diversify your economy leaves you exceptionally vulnerable to disaster. Crime steadily rose as the police presence lessened and the economic hardship intensified. The schools, hospitals, and fire stations all went into a simultaneous state of decline. This economic hardship is what preceded the largest wave of flight from Gary, Indiana. But the flight was not evenly distributed. Local longtime resident Walter Bell told The Guardian in 2017 that when the jobs left, the whites could afford to move, and they did but we blacks didn't have a choice. They wouldn't let us into their new neighborhoods with the good jobs, or if they let us, we sure as hell couldn't afford it. Then to make it worse, when we looked at the nice houses they left behind, we couldn't buy them because the banks wouldn't lend us money. Today, Gary remains in a state of recovery, but still lacks a replacement for what was once the heart that pumped the money through their community. Today, steel mills in Gary employ only 7,000 workers, and many of them commute to work from other communities. Local initiatives, including the Gary Railcats, the Gary Airport, as well as the public and private school systems, helps to provide opportunities to residents and infuse the community's hope that Gary can once again reclaim its magic. So what are the lessons that I hope you take away from this to help your understanding of the slave trade in West Africa? First, there are many triggers that are responsible for a societal collapse, and oftentimes, such as in the occurrence of white flight, 
the cause that gathers the most attention might not be the root source of that collapse. Secondly, societies can rise and fall quickly, and that fall frequently has to do with factors that are beyond their control. The workers at the Gary Steel Mills did not suddenly start making inferior steel. Factors within the global economy made their product less desirable, and the rise of automation made their services redundant. Thirdly, Gary bet on the wrong industry. For decades, the steel mills drove growth in Gary, but an economy based on only one product is prone to disruption. The best option would have been for Gary to diversify its economy. This does not guarantee success. For instance, had Gary bet on tourism, for instance, it would have seen its rise continue to fall along the lines of Las Vegas, Orlando, or Wisconsin Dells. These cities never saw a full collapse of their industry, at least not until 2020, when COVID-19 would force all of us to abandon a year's worth of travel plans. Now that we have an idea of the lessons, it's time to apply them. The rise and fall of the civilizations of West Africa is deeply entwined in the economics of slavery. First, an exceptionally important note. The world did not settle on gold as the backing for all money until 1821. Most of the events that we are going to be speaking on occurred in the range of 14 to 1800 AD. During this time, the economies of West Africa produced a lot of gold, but they did not use it as their currency. Instead, the markets of West Africa revolved around things like cowrie seashells, cloth, iron bars, and copper. You're going to hear about Africans trading gold for iron, and we'll probably assume that they're getting ripped off. But they weren't at this point in time. Only after the world settled on gold as a currency did the damage to the African continent become truly apparent and irreversible. It would be as if suddenly the world decided that Bitcoin was the true currency, rather than dollars. The few of us that have been mining Bitcoin would come out as massive winners from such a decision. The fact that gold won the currency wars does not mean that everyone thought it would come out on top. Hence the existence of several losers in 1821. You might also assume that these trades were done as part of a barter system. Africans, however, were not primitive traders. Exchanging seashells for food was not a trade of products. The cowrie seashells were a form of currency. This is the same as if you were in a marketplace in Mexico City and the seller is willing to accept pesos, dollars, or maybe even Venmo. You will choose to pay with whichever you have, whichever is convenient, or if you are truly economically savvy, you'll pay with whichever has the best exchange rate at that exact moment in time. The use of these soft currencies, however, were extremely problematic and created inequalities between Africa and its trading partners. Cloth, which served as both a form of currency, as in one yard of cloth equals so many dollars, was also physically worn as a way of showcasing your wealth. 
This is kind of like how we wear diamonds on our rings, necklaces, and earrings to show off our wealth. And in the same way that many of us can tell the difference between a cubic zirconia and the real thing, the locals could professionally ascertain whether your cloth was good Indian fabric or a cheap knockoff. No matter how nice the cloth is, however, it decays over time, meaning that it loses its value, while dollar bills and gold bars retain theirs. Copper and iron could keep its value, but Africans would melt down the bars of iron and use them to create products such as field plows. This is the literal equivalent of investing your profit back into your business. African blacksmiths were renowned around the world for their ability to the point that American slave plantation owners would expect the slaves to produce their own work instruments for the farm. Choosing currencies that would lose value over time was the first of the economic missteps that West Africa made. Worse, however, was the impact that the exportation of slaves had on their economies. For understanding the true effect that the slave trade had on the economics of Africa, we turn to Karl Marx. We're not using Marx here to talk at all about communism. Instead, we want to look at the assumptions that underscored Marx's theories behind what he thought would eventually lead to the acceptance of communism, namely that of labor output value. Marx postulated that the way to grow the economy and to produce more was to extract surplus labor from your people, meaning that you had to find ways to get more out of your workers. You could increase their efficiency. You could make them work longer. You could push them to work faster. You could even enslave them to get more out of them. This increase in additional surplus labor would allow the business owner to make more money which in turn allows them to reinvest it back into their business. Typically, this came about in ways such as hiring more workers, which would in turn increase the owner's profit again. These economic principles are all sound and make up a lot of what underpins capitalism. Selling workers as slaves to other continents meant letting surplus labor leave and benefit other civilizations. As we talked about in the prior episode, Africa turned to slaves for a multitude of reasons that resulted in the growth of their economies. Slaves were more productive, owners saved money as they paid off their purchase price within months, and it freed up other members of the civilization to specialize in government roles a slave created additional economic output and value well in excess of their purchase price. The slave's economic value increased for decades as they typically performed the same task over and over again, which in assembly line fashion creates expertise and efficiency and leads to the creation of a surplus of labor. In return, African economies received money, typically in the form of a soft currency whose value deteriorated over time. That decline happened quickly in the case of economies that revolved around cloth. To add insult to injury, each slave exported was another African that could have added surplus labor capital to their own economy, either as a free worker 
or as their own slave, which was extremely rare, as social death was rare when you remained among your own people. Obviously, the proper answer there is as a free worker. But working as a historian, you have to divorce yourself from the morals of your world and put yourself in the shoes of the contemporary citizens of the time. The creation of the transatlantic slave trade exploded the demand for African slaves. It opened a market that resulted in the export of 12.5 million Africans, exceeding the 10 million that left in the trans-Saharan trade. In the Americas, slavery was racialized, and Africa therefore became the only market capable of producing the product that the buyers desired. It was not just to the United States of America either. Brazil imported an insane 4.9 million slaves from Africa between 1501 and 1866. Caribbean islands such as Haiti and Jamaica saw figures in the millions arrive on their shores. The Europeans paid steeply for the acquisition of these slaves. While we might look at cowrie seashells as both primitive and silly, cowrie shells were common throughout the world as a currency. Nature produced the shells, but they were rare enough in individual locations that inflation was uncommon, at least that is until the transatlantic slave trade began. African kingdoms sold so many slaves that their currencies became hyperinflated. The best known example in world history of hyperinflation is that which occurred in Weimar, Germany. There, the wartime reparations dictated by the Treaty of Versailles forced Germany to print vast sums of their currency. The act of flooding the market with money devalues the currency. Germans notoriously took shopping carts full of Reichmarks into the supermarket and came out with only one loaf of bread to show for it. Soon, the currency was so worthless that the government had to print out individual bills worth billions of marks to simplify the challenge of holding enough money within your wallet or purse. Contrast this to gold, which besides during the life of Mansa Musa has rarely suffered massive value fluctuations. In January 1919, a German needed 170 marks to buy one ounce of gold. In September of 1923, you needed 269 million marks to buy the same amount of gold. One month later, the price had gone up in Germany to 87 trillion marks. The effects are worse than just devaluing the currency. After all, African kingdoms accepted multiple forms of currency, which shielded them from some of the effects of hyperinflation. But traditional economic theories posit that an increase in currency supply without an increase in the supply of goods for that money that will be spent causes inflation. Inflation meant that the cost of locally manufactured goods made in West Africa increased, and they were often unable to compete with foreign imports that were essentially dumped there. Europe was obsessed with the trade of slaves, and they were willing to export any number of goods that African nations wanted. These goods were also traded traditionally outside of the slave trade as well. 
Europe, which was in the early stages of what would eventually become the Industrial Revolution, was able to produce many goods at decidedly cheaper prices than local craftsmen. African kingdoms happily purchased these goods, as they were both decent quality and cheaper than what locals were able to produce. This in turn put African businesses out of business. The effect is no different than when a Walmart opens a new location. Their ability to sell goods far cheaper than their competition means the smaller local businesses end up suffering and oftentimes shuttering their doors for good. African kingdoms did not confront the damage that the importation of most of their goods were having on local industry. They had unwittingly become 100% dependent upon what the Europeans brought them for sale. This truly came back to haunt them when the sale of slaves ceased, and Europeans no longer brought nearly as many goods to trade. The most sinister example of the game that Europeans played here was with the cloth industry. Cloth was both a currency and a necessity. Varieties that were imported and certain colors, such as indigo, held more value and social status. Initially, the Europeans acted as middlemen, buying up the desired cloth from India and selling it in West Africa. They then learned to produce it themselves and proceeded to take over an island off the coast of Africa, which they named Cape Verde. On this island, they deliberately imitated the Fulas, a local African tribe's techniques of cloth weaving. Then they purchased slaves to provide the free labor and finally proceeded to put the Fula cloth makers out of business to monopolize the industry under their control. Since cloth was also a currency, it is the equivalent of America taking over Canada's monetary printing presses. An example of the sheer volume of goods being imported in the 1600s comes from the log of a fleet of Dutch ships that arrived in 1624 to Senegambia. The Dutch brought 14,328 notched and measured iron bars, which was the main form of currency for the kingdom. They also brought a variety of Indian cloths, including satin, silver, and floral brocade. 264 pieces of English serge, 1,039 Irish blankets, 15,000 pounds of copper bars, basins, and cauldrons. While these goods and influx of money facilitated the growth of African political institutions, it also created broader economic patterns that would ultimately undermine West Africa's economic position as the increased trade did not bring equal benefits to the peoples of Africa. The elite secured most of the economic gains through control of the trade and import taxes, and few benefits trickled down to the lower and middle classes. Thus far, we have shown what individuals living in 2020 would call obvious economic mistakes. Modern economic theories, however, were in an infant stage of their development. It is also necessary to point out that the Africans were not victims here. 
It is easy to assume that this trade went down in a similar manner to the interactions between America's indigenous peoples and European settlers. There, Europeans created cheap baubles, such as red beads that held little to no value, to buy supplies and products from the natives, including extremely valuable furs. The natives succumbed to European diseases and had no way of fighting against superior European weaponry. It is understood that over 90% of all natives perished due to foreign diseases. Professor Jared Diamond's award-winning book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, utilizes six conquistadors' private diaries to show how roughly 100 Spaniards were able to defeat an army that numbered near 100,000 in the Battle of Cajamarca. There, the Incans encountered horses, guns, and Spanish steel for the first time. The cannons, muskets, and horses were terrifying. The sheer volume that came along with them had never been heard in the Andes. It was the steel that made all the difference, however. The Incan warriors were used to combat with hand axes and slings. These warriors likely excelled at the use of these weapons. Each soldier was trained to aim at their target's chest. Incans at this time wore cloth armor, i.e. layers of hardened clothing. The Spaniards, on the other hand, had steel breastplates. You can imagine the shock that would come across the Incan's face when a perfect throw bounced off harmlessly with no more than a ping. Then envision the shock at hearing the boom of a gun without knowing what it is and seeing the soldier next to you fall dead from an unseen wound. Africans, on the other hand, held significantly better cards in dealing with the Europeans that arrived on their shores. Due to their long-standing contact in the past with the Europeans, they were inoculated from the worst European diseases, including smallpox. Europeans, on the other hand, were highly vulnerable to several deadly diseases that were only found in Africa. The horse was not the superior weapon in Africa as it was in the Americas, as the animal was especially prone to death by the tsetse fly, which is indigenous to the forests of Africa. Plus, Africans had long had access to Arabian horses from the Trans-Saharan trade. Whereas the Native American armies arrived already decimated because of disease and civil war in the case of the Incas, the African armies were full strength and more than a match for any European soldiers that set foot on their shores. The only advantage the Europeans had over the African kingdoms were guns. But soon they would trade large numbers of weapons in exchange for slaves. Despite the advantage in firepower, few head-to-head -head fights ever occurred, as all Africans had to do to bend the white man to their will was deny them access to local sources of food and water. Being a European slave trader was not an enviable job. The life expectancy was low, with many of them succumbing to African diseases, particularly malaria. Additionally, inbound European ships were regularly attacked in robbery attempts. Success not only netted a ship full of European products and money, but also afforded the opportunity to ransom or enslave the European crew. 
That's right. Africans never bought into the racialization of slavery. They were always equal opportunity slavers. Captain James Riley is the most famous example of an American who found himself enslaved in Africa during the beginning of the 19th century. The dangers for slavers continued once inland, as the houses of European traders were regularly broken into. Africans did not tolerate mischief from their European peers. A Portuguese trader named De La Marche once stole a small amount of tobacco and cotton. Before he could escape to the sea with his plunder, the king of Wallo sent 500 ships to intercept the criminal. De La Marche and three co-conspirators were captured and summarily executed. Attacking slavers was not a hard sell for locals, as the practice of slavery was wrapped up with accusations and suspicion of cannibalism. Africans connected the two concepts as slavery was something that consumed people, literally devouring West and West Central Africa's human resources. I'm not saying any of this to try to gain sympathy for the devil. Instead, I'm attempting to explain that for these reasons and others, European traders needed African partners more than the Africans needed them. Many of the local traders that they dealt with happened to be women. This was particularly true in Senegambia, where traders were almost exclusively women. Part of this was due to many African kingdoms having a matrilineal history, and another part of it was practical. While Africans favored female slaves, the transatlantic trade much preferred to consume male slaves. This means that the slave trade unevenly depopulated Africa based upon gender lines. This effect became even more exaggerated as African warfare also disproportionately killed more men. There was a final curious motive for allowing women to take the reins of trade. In matrilineal societies such as the Gold Coast Fanta, local female traders often married their European counterparts. Any children that were the result of the marriage stayed with the woman. If that European husband dies while on the job, all of his property also remains in the hands of his African wife. There are numerous accounts of women climbing the economic ladder by gaining important business connections via marriage. Put it all together and a clear pattern emerges. With men preoccupied by warfare, hunting, and the growing structures of patriarchal political administration, trade could become the preserve of women. Moreover, some women could gain preferential access to prestige goods through marrying the Atlantic traders, who were all men. Local kings often encouraged them to do this. If a male spouse died, the property would therefore remain in the kingdom. So time to put this in the context of what we know. The fall of Gary, which presented us three lessons, the first of which was that there are many causes to a collapse 
and the most spoken about, in Gary's case, white flight, is not always the main cause. In West Africa's case, slavery takes the role of white flight, which was obviously a significant problem as it depopulated the continent and deprived it of surplus labor capital. But the dumping of cheap European goods and purposeful undercutting of local currencies created devastating levels of inflation and annihilated local industry. This set the stage for economic dependence upon outsiders. Since the wealth was monopolized by big men through control of import fees, only the top of the African social classes profited from the imports, while the rest were left to deal with the consequences. The combination of these challenges was debilitating for the economies and peoples of West Africa. The second lesson was that the factors of Gary's demise were outside of its control. Once Europe figured out which keys opened the economic doors of Africa, they did whatever it took to facilitate unequal trade. We already saw an example of this with the Portuguese settling Cape Verde to undercut a cloth-based economy. The dependency that was created prevented the Africans from retaining the early upper hand that they had over their white counterparts. They gradually had to cede land for the creation of fortresses that allowed Europeans to access their own independent sources of water. The ruins of these fortresses still remind contemporary Africans of the shame of this period of history. It was not the Africans, however, that ended the trade of human beings. Europe independently ended the transatlantic trade, and Africa was left without its most desirable product in an economy that was based purely around exports. These factors had long-term effects for the civilizations of Africa and were entirely out of their control. You can also easily apply this to the third lesson of Gary, namely that the West Africans bet on the wrong product. But we will instead apply the lesson of currency choice here. Remember that cowries and the other currencies of Africa were used throughout the world. There was no obvious sign that gold would win the currency wars. However, once gold did in fact win in 1821 and became the standard backing of all currency, the kingdoms of West Africa were left holding massive reserves of nearly worthless shells. I would like to go a little deeper into cowrie shells before we move on to the next chapter of our story. Cowrie monies remain deeply imprinted on the public memory of Africa. Ghana's word for money, sidi, is the same word that the Akan people use for cowrie shells. The central banks of Togo, Benin, and Ghana all have cowries either printed on today's currency or on their national seal. The shells made their way to West Africa from the Maldives Islands in the Indian Ocean. They were a practical choice for money as they never degraded and were easily transported and held in purses. Pharaohs in ancient Egypt were entombed with millions of shells. The Chinese preferred to use shells as they could not be counterfeited. 
In Africa, South and North America, the shell came to symbolize the power of prosperity. Women in Roman Pompeii were said to have worn cowrie shells to prevent infertility. The Aboriginal peoples of Australia each gathered different styles of shells to differentiate their tribe from others. I point all of this out to reveal the near-geographical universal belief of cowries as a legitimate currency. We all wish that money grew on trees, but imagine the wars that would be fought over the rights to control that forest. Cowrie shells washed up in limited locations. The Europeans, first the Portuguese and then others, rushed to the Maldives and bought up slash gathered up as many shells as they could possibly find. Imagine a cargo hold of a ship filled to the brim with tiny seashells. The African big men were collecting what they believed to be huge amounts of wealth from the Europeans. They sold gold for these shells. They sold people for these shells. The 1800s, however, saw an exponential decline in the value of those shells. In Yoruba areas, a bag of cowries, roughly 20,000, was said to be enough to start a new business in Africa. In England, you could buy that bag of shells for five shillings. When it became clear that these were excessively unfair trades and that the world was shifting to precious metals, some big men shifted to silver. However, the 18th century also saw a tripling of American silver production as new large mines were opened in Mexico. The world market became flooded and silver subsequently depreciated. In short, African kingdoms bet on the wrong currency slash currencies. It was only a few kingdoms, notably Asante and Dahomey, that were able to hold on to their positions of power until colonization. The key to the survival of both kingdoms were the fact that they still had huge reserves of gold left to tap. Economics is at the forefront of everything in the world. But there is another part in the fall of West Africa that we have to talk about here. It's something that Toby Green, a senior lecturer on African history and culture at King's College in London, terms the fiscal military state. The simplest way to comprehend this term is that the government used the military to make money for the state. This creates a cyclical dependency which requires continuous military action for the survival of the state. Hunters have long played an important role in traditional African societies, many of which believe the spirits of good and ill will lived in force. The act of cutting down an enemy's sacred force was to destroy that people's spiritual protection. It was the hunters that were willing to enter and conquer the forest. Many warriors found their way to places on top of society. Once in charge, they did not end their warrior ways, instead using their newfound positions of power to expand the use of the military. 
The Kabu had an elite class of aristocratic warriors known as the Yantio. The importance of warfare to the Yantio is best described by the oral history of Sajo Marn, who stated that in Kabu's old generations, there was only war. There, raids earned warriors riches as well as a privileged place in the society. They were greeted as victorious heroes after raids and could marry their choice of women from societies that they conquered. The society was so focused on war that they produced very little for themselves. Similarly to the Mongols, military raids became the way that they gained access to new things. Unlike the Mongols, however, the Kabu had to continue military raids just to survive on the bare necessities. They had become locusts. Finally, the Kabu met a younger society that had not yet become worn down from hundreds if not thousands of conflicts. This group were the Fula migrants, and they came in successive waves from the north. As the Fula grew in power, they enslaved those that they encountered, particularly the Kabu. From the sale of those captives, the Fula were able to secure the friendship of Europeans. And with that support, they were able to eliminate the Kabu once and for all. The 1700s was one of endemic warfare in West Africa, and the slave trade was the number one source of it. While all African slaves came from violence, three out of four of them specifically came from acts of war. Prisoners on the battlefield and those that the defeated warriors were protecting were seized, shown a social death, and brutalized until they gave up hope of returning to their past lives. Once it was clear, however, that these prisoners were extremely valuable, professional slavers entered the fray. Remember, institutionalized slavery was flourishing in Africa long before the Europeans ever joined. Toby Green spent years in Africa before writing his 2019 work, A Fistful of Shells. One of the fascinating stories in the work describes how a young Balanta friend of his from Guinea-Bissau invited him to come to his village which was nearby. Green describes the journey like this. We walked for almost two hours along a path through the bush that wound in what seemed like endless circles until we found the wooden stakes that encircled and herald his father's house. Once there, the father berated his son for allowing an outsider to find them. Green continued, I felt lost by the path. In a sense, I had been taken on a walk through history. These paths had been deliberately designed to disorientate and ward off potential attackers in the years of the Atlantic trade. They would be unable to find their way out if they arrived seeking captives. Balanta communities preserve this memory in the shape of their settlements to this very day. With slavers beginning to search out and kidnap families throughout the continent, people began to plan their defenses. They fortified their settlements, moved them far away from the rivers and traditional roads, and banded together for protection. 
But as these measures failed to provide genuine security, Africans adjusted to living in a dangerous world. Namely, they found someone more dangerous and placed themselves under their protection. This is what enabled the rise of the big men of the 17th century. People flocked to their banner for safety, giving them access to more resources. And how were these big men able to protect them? They typically had previously accumulated wealth and power through participation in the slave trade. The Dutch complained as early as 1686 that the English were giving hugely excessive sums of cowries for enslaved persons in the kingdom of Alada. The going rate was 82 pounds of cowries for one person. That high price resulted in the English having four times the size of trade with Alada as the Dutch. That insane price persuaded the Alada ruler to find more slaves. Greed took over as the primary driver of slavery. For many Africans, the choice to support rulers like this came down to the simple belief that it was better to be the slaver than the slave. Import taxes were the simplest and most efficient form of wealth collection in Africa. The geographical size, as well as the lack of formalized ethnicities, subsistence living, and unmarked physical boundaries made other forms of tax collection exceptionally unproductive. Because the foreign ships could only dock at predetermined locations, and few roads were large enough to allow for large caravans, administering control over international trade became the best way to secure streams of government revenue. In Senegambia, taxes were often around a quarter of the value of the goods on each ship. In Benin, the taxes came both before and after each trade, as it was a requirement to pay the king 720 pounds of cowries for the right to trade, and 400 pounds of cowries for the required delivery fee for the goods that you purchased. This was a steep fee, considering all the locals did was move it from the dock to your ship or caravan. For some civilizations, these taxes became their only source of revenue. It reached comical proportions when some gold-producing kingdoms would import foreign gold from Brazil just so they could collect the taxes on it. The largest product traded were slaves, which tied the government's revenue directly to the institution of slavery. Entire governments organized themselves around the trade of captives. A visitor in 1786 gave a wonderful description of the Oba's ruling council for the Idu civilization. Here's what he said. Sixty old men, about seventy years of age, known as the big men, were dressed superbly and surrounded their master. Every one of them wore around his neck, ankles, and wrists two rows of very large coral, which is the distinctive mark of the highest office of the state. The above number of old men is divided into three sections. Twenty of them have charge of receipts and expenses, and are called the Council of the Finance Minister. Twenty others make up the Council of the Minister of War, 
and occupy themselves with all the concerns of peace and war, and the last twenty have control of trade. Think about that for a moment. The big men are all aged, having benefited from the system for years. They flaunt their wealth by wearing it as symbols of their office. One third of the government focuses on spending, while the other two thirds deal with the slave trade, as twenty have control of trade, and the other twenty control war, which produces slaves for trade. The Europeans quickly figured all of this out and sought to bring the price for slaves down by increasing the supply. To do so, they actively pursued policies that would destabilize their African trading partners. We already showed how the Europeans destabilized Africa's economy through the saturation of local markets with cheap goods that eliminated local industry. But European efforts went far beyond economic disruption, however, as the Europeans set the stage for a century of continuous warfare. They did this through the arms trade. Guns and horses flooded into Africa. While the horse was not able to survive in forested areas due to the presence of the tsetse fly, there were incredibly effective cavalry units on the savanna. The Jolof, a classic example of the African fiscal military state, were described by Europeans as excellent horsemen. Some among them can ride in a straight line, rising their stirrups over the horse's neck to strike one leg against the other two or three times. They often have races or wagers as to which of them will be able to use their big arrows to cut through the girth of the saddle of the other without wounding or killing the horse. The Jolaf were a subordinate of Mali who rose to establish their own empire with five provinces under their command. They used their cavalry to invade and raid neighbors to accumulate slaves. An account from 1767 lays the truth of the fiscal military state bare for all to see, saying that when the king is at peace with his neighbor, he produces few captives for the trade, but when he is at war, he produces a considerable number of slaves. Faced with a rival civilization raiding their people, Big men had no choice but to respond, and a raid quickly turned into a war. Their social contract depended upon them being capable of safeguarding their own people. The Europeans emerged as the winners from every African conflict. War produced a higher supply of slaves, which in turn decreased the price for their purchase. Each side wanted access to European guns and horses, Thus, the price of European weapons rose during times of conflict. Traders were happy to arm both sides of each conflict. The Jaga were a populous group against the ruling regime of Congo. They purchased weapons from European traders and then came out of the Kwango River Basin, burning and looting their way towards the capital. The ruler of Congo was so terrified of being deposed that he turned to the Portuguese for assistance. The result was an arms sale agreement that included terms which placed Portuguese advisors 
on the Electoral Ruling Council of Congo. This position of power allowed them to shape Congo politics to further favor their interests. Alcohol was another favored method for introducing instability to the African continent. Traders would offer liquor, particularly rum and wines, to those that they traded with. Around 1790, liquor became the most sought-after European good in the kingdom of Akara. Trading partners would offer it up by the gallon, and it is still customary in Angola to bring alcohol as a gift when meeting local chiefs today. Addiction to alcohol served to produce both dependency and chaos, as the oral narrative of Khalifa Sarn illustrates. There are a series of stories about the Senegambian ruler that together comprise a work of epic poetry. In many accounts of Khalifa, his most violent actions are closely associated with his alcohol consumption. One story casually mentions that the day they were leaving there, half the children of the village went to gather small sticks of firewood. He saw those children in the woods, one hundred of them, and he took all these and sold them for alcoholic beverages. Europeans would run a similar playbook for destabilization in the opium wars of China. Introducing the drug caused widespread addiction and dissatisfaction with the government. That in turn led to cracks within the walls that kept European and American traders out. The success of this method oftentimes depended upon how much of the civilization were Islamic. Islam offered an alternative to the effects of alcohol in African societies, as most Muslims do not partake at all in the drinking of alcohol. A few civilizations adopted the faith purely as a means of defending themselves against the intrusion of the new drug. destabilizing Africa did not only produce more slaves, its benefits trickled down to other industries. Portuguese trader João Rodrigues Roxo stated, if only a slave trade could be instituted alongside the gold trade at Elmina, as there will soon be war among them, and that will make them have to trade more gold to finance their wars. Even civil war became ideal as Jao de Barros noted when he pointed out the civil war was stoked by the coming of our ships which traded on that coast. The land was becoming full of horses and other trade goods which the rebels lacked. Portuguese trade was exacerbating military buildups on all sides. The rise of the fiscal military state facilitated the rise of the big men as the authoritarian rulers of Africa. The Europeans introduced arms, liquor, and produced economic conditions that made war more likely. So where are those Gary lessons here? First, when we talk about the fall of African kingdoms, it's easy to talk about corrupt authoritarian rulers, in the same way that it was easy to talk about white flight from Gary. In truth, European actions encouraged both the consolidation of power as well as continuous warfare. Both of these factors created not only corrupt authoritarian rulers, 
but produce the means to keep them in power, namely slaves. Secondly, a number of factors outside of their control were in play. Climate change, which led to a steadily worsening climate across West Africa from 1640 onwards, resulted in a series of droughts, famines, and epidemics. This in turn forced some in Africa to increase the enslavement of its own people because European traders depended upon the locals to also sell them the food that was needed for the journey across the Atlantic. This was a Herculean task and required the locals to exhaust their own soil of nutrients. The lack of available supplies for the Atlantic and Saharan crossings were the number one limiter on how many slaves could be purchased. Without full ships, the entire expedition would operate at a financial loss. The margins just were not strong enough to sail without the full cargo. This meant that European traders would be stuck living at port until the requisite food supplies could be gathered. Third, African kingdoms bet on the wrong industry. To illustrate this lesson, one can look at the bet that the African people made on their leaders. The social contract was based upon the idea of ensuring security. By supporting big men, they sacrificed the security of others. The fiscal military state required a continuous cycle of violence to have the revenue necessary to fulfill its obligations. The existence of multiple kingdoms having the same modus operandi ensured that no one was ever truly safe. Your government would have to attack other governments who were both after the same thing, human resources. While you might win today's wars, you never knew about tomorrow's. The eventual end of the slave trade left the citizens of West Africa with zero stability, support, or chance. We started this episode by looking at the rise and fall of Gary, Indiana, over a period of roughly 90 years. Cities do not just randomly collapse. Likewise, nations, which are comprised of many cities, do not just randomly fail. A series of bad policy decisions result in their failures. Africa, before the transatlantic slave trade, was far from perfect. But it was a working land of empires. Their decision to enslave their own people was immoral, but their version of social death was reversible with enough time. The insertion of the Europeans destabilized and reversed the progress that most African nations were making. Local industry was put out of business, currencies were undercut, arms races were begun, and power was consolidated under dictatorial big men. Addiction to both guns and alcohol created dependence on those who sought to take advantage of their counterparts. In order to participate in this society, the people of Africa were forced to overwork their land. The rise of the fiscal military state fueled a cycle that rendered the economic benefits of the slave trade useless to all of those except the top of the system, while keeping the ordinary people in a permanent state of compromised security.
I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.